0: Thank you, Shell. Uh, It's a great privilege to be here uh, to speak to you before these performances. Uh, The LA Opera League, as Shell just described to you, and as you probably have heard on a number of these uh, pre-performance talks, is a very critical part of the Los Angeles opera family. Um, As far as I'm concerned, they are the backbone of of the company. They are the uh, unsung heroes in the sense that they provide food for all of the performing members during rehearsals, especially the dress rehearsal. They'll offer uh, driving accommodations, and they're just smiling faces who absolutely adore this company and put in hundreds of hours of time to make the performances in this company uh, the glamorous opera company that it is internationally. So I'm I'm terrifically honored to be asked by them and salute them as we all should each, uh, each time. So LA Opera League, congratulations. So it's a certain, um, brings a smile to my face, uh, the opera, The Tales of Hoffman, because the year after I graduated from college and had just really been introduced to opera, uh, the San Diego Opera put on a production, and this would have been in 1977 and it was a a production that Beverly Sills had starred in, although she was no longer performing in the role, but it was the New York City Opera that produced it. And not only did the San Diego Opera produce it in 1977, but shortly thereafter in 1978, the New York City Opera presented The Tales of Hoffman, the same production here in Los Angeles at the Music Center. And so, as a young opera fan, it seemed as though The Tales of Hoffman was going to be an opera that I saw a whole lot. And in the first couple of years of my opera going, I saw this same production several times, and it became very familiar. Um, What's so, so amazing is that in the last, let's just say, several decades, it's an opera that has not been performed with any regularity. And so that, uh, that means that we all come to it with a fresh sense of what is this opera, what's it about, and how do we approach it now in 2017? And how is the Los Angeles Opera, and how do performing companies approach it? Well, in many ways, the best approach is to look at where the opera was, how it was created in its early days, and how that reflects today on what we're going to see. And if you've done any background or read anything about this opera, its, t- its performance structure is totally and entirely confusing. And that's because there are so many characters, and oftentimes companies will have the same character perform all of the soprano parts, all of the tenor parts, and all of the uh, baritone parts. So there'll be three singers doing each of these characters and their names change, except for Hofmann, in each of the acts, and there are three acts but there's also a prologue and an epilogue so sometimes you'll hear it produced as five acts so do we have a prologue and an epilogue and three acts or do we have five acts and who are the characters and how do we keep them apart and distinguish them and sometimes the acts aren't called Act One, Act Two, or Act Three are known, but they're instead known as the name of the character, the leading lady, as it were, the dramatic singer, the soprano in each of the acts. So there's the Olympia Act, there's the Antonia Act, and there's the Julieta Act. And there's some question not in our mind is how do we keep those names separated? Well, we all know Olympia, she's the, the robotic doll, she's the automaton who has that great aria that, uh, that we all probably can, can can hear in our sleep sometimes. But then there's Antonia and Giulietta, and, and who are these? Isn't one of them take place in Venice and one of them takes place in Munich? But at the very first performance of this opera, the gentleman who was producing the opera, Leon Cavallo, who was a very dominant character, decided to actually chop off one entire act, but instead move then the situs or the place of that act into the one that's remaining and brought music from the act that he chopped off and put it into a different act. And then the publishing company the next year actually published the score with a lot of these. Conversions. The reasons these conversions took place is that Offenbach died about three months before the opera was produced. He actually said to Leon Carvalho, Carvalho, not the the, uh, operatic composer uh, Leon Carvalho, but Leon Carvalho, he said, please would you hurry up and get my opera done? I'd like to see it before I die. And he actually knew he was dying because he was suffering from gout. And the gout had, had evolved to the point that, uh, that he was um, very weakened in the last, really, nine months of his life. And so he was working awfully hard to complete this opera, this grand opera, this dramatic opera, so that he would be remembered, not for the 90 operettas that he had produced and written so easily in the preceding 40 years, but he wanted to be remembered for somebody who produced a grand opera. So while his body actually shriveled um, and his writing became very difficult to perceive, he did finish what he wanted to complete. It just hadn't been orchestrated, but then, the director of the Opera Comique, which was the big opera company in Paris, he decided to then rearrange things. And it is that that has led to such confusion. So hopefully tonight, I'll give you a little bit of an idea of how to keep the characters somewhat straight. So the production tonight is going to proceed with a prologue where we'll meet Hoffmann. And Hoffman is actually the representation of a real author, E.T.A. Hoffman, who lived um, in the early 19th century and wrote a lot of stories. Hoffman, E.T.A. Hoffman, was actually a painter, a lawyer, a musician, as well as, uh, as an orator. So he had these great, um, these great abilities. And he actually, Hoffman himself actually composed music, but that hasn't been incorporated. But Hoffman told stories, and it was the idea of two French authors, Michel Carré and Jules Barbier, who were librettists, to actually write a drama based on four of E.T.A. Hoffman's stories. Now, they were each little love stories, and the reason Hoffman the E.T.A. Hoffman wrote little love stories is that he grew up in a very tough life. As a young child, he was raised essentially by his bachelor uncle who was mean and the only person who was nice to him was a woman who lived in the house, not his mother, although he had a good relationship with her. A woman lived in the house who was a soprano, and they'd have musicals. and on those, those evenings, the soprano would sing so beautifully and was so fond of Hoffman, the real author, the child, that he became enamored of the soprano voice. So we have each of these stories, which are love affairs with sopranos, Now, the librettists, Jules Barbier and and Michel Carré, wrote a, a play in 1851, essentially The Tales of Hoffman. And they put Hoffman as the male character in each of the stories. And those are what are represented in the opera when Offenbach wanted to write an opera. He went to these librettists and he said, I saw your play in 1851 and I'd like to write an opera about it and they said fine and and essentially they worked with him. Well did uh, Jules Barbier because Michel Carré had had predeceased his his partner. So I've got you all confused. So there's the prologue. Hoffman, he's a tenor. He is in love with women but every one of his affairs is failed totally abysmally he can't find love any place but he himself is a good poet a writer and he has a muse in other words a writer has somebody that basically gives them inspiration it doesn't have to be a person it can be a spirit or a thing and that character of the muse Hoffman's muse is represented in the opera and will be present all the time. So that is one of the characters on the stage. Hoffman the tenor, Nikolaus or the muse is the representation in human form of the poetic muse that leads Hoffman to his real calling which is the beauty of words and poetry. So that character, the muse, is trying to represent the foil to all of the foiled love affairs that Hoffman has. So we now have Nikolaus, who is also the muse, one person in two names. Then we have Hoffman, the tenor. Nikolaus is generally performed by a mezzo-soprano, but in some performances it's performed by a bass baritone, so that's where it gets confusing too. Let's just keep it with a (laughs) mezzo-soprano. So then there's this character called Counselor Lindorf. Now Counselor Lindorf is the manifestation of evil. And he is, he is both evil, but he also has magical powers. So he can manipulate not only the emotion of people, but he can manipulate events as well. But he has four different names. So he appears in each of the acts as four different names. So in the prologue, it is Counselor Lindorf. And Counselor Lindorf appears at the end of the opera in the epilogue as well. But in between, he has different names. In the first Olympia act, again, she's the automaton doll. Counselor Lindorf is known as Coppelius. Now Coppelius, again, is the incarnation of evil. And the incarnation of evil foils acts to frustrate all of Hoffman's love affairs. So Hoffman can't blame it on his own inability to see reality, he has to blame it on this figure of the satanic character, which is fine, it's good for opera. He's known as Coppelius in the Olympia, or automaton, um, the robotic doll scene. In the Venice scene, which is the scene that has the great barcarolle, the courtesan, the wealthy courtesan is named Julieta. And in this particular scene, Counselor Lindorf is known as All Right. So it's Counselor Lindorf, Coppelius, Tutto. And in the third act, what is known as the Antonia act, and the Antonia is a singer, she's a soprano, and her mother has just died of consumption, but her mother died of consumption because she had a beautiful voice, and she wore herself out. And Antonia is suffering from the same incident her voice is causing her frailty and may take her life. Counselor Lindorf, Coppelius, Tuto appears in the Antonia Act is Dr. Miracle. It's actually Dr. Miracle, but in French it's Miracle. Dr. Miracle. So we have Counselor Lindorf, Coppelius, Doppertutto, Dr. Miracle. They're all the same character and they will all be performed by the same baritone. So we have Hoffman the tenor, we've got the uh, counselor Lindorf and his characters, we have the muse and Nikolaus, and then we have the main soprano, this main soprano parts. And in addition to the Olympia act, Olympia act, and the Antonia act and the Julieta act, there's this other character, Stella. And Stella appears in the prologue and Stella appears in the epilogue, and Stella is a soprano who's performing next door in a theater in the opera Don Giovanni, and she's Donna Anna. And she, Stella, represents the manifestation of all of the three other women. So Hoffman sees in Stella these three women, and he's in love with her. And as the opera begins, Stella is sending to Hoffman her key to her, essentially, essentially to her dressing room at the opera house where she wants him to come after her performance. So while Andre the servant is taking Stella's key to Hoffman, Andre is interrupted by Counselor Lindorf, because he has a shine for Stella himself. Now he wants to frustrate Hoffman, but he's, you know, pretending to love her, or want her, desire her as well. So he bribes Andre and Counselor Lindorf gets Stella's key. We're then transported to essentially the better part of probably the best-known part of the prologue, which takes place in Luther's tavern. Now Luther's Tavern is funny for a couple of reasons. One, you wonder why did he pick Luther? Well, E.T.A. Hoffman, the real writer, had a group of writing buddies. They all wrote together, they were authors, and they hung out. Puccini had his Puccini Club, and a lot of these composers had their, I don't want to say hangers-on, but they had their pals that they hung out with. So E.T.A. Hoffman hung out with his writing friends at a tavern called Luther's Inn. So in the context of putting this opera together, we have Hoffman's real drinking bar named Luther, Luther's Inn, where we all are transported and we first meet Hoffman. All right, so when we meet Hoffman, he's there with a group of students, and they first sing about the glory of beer and wine, and so you'll hear a chorus of that and how wonderful it is. And then Hoffman will come in, and Hoffman is, He's kind of a, a character who's, who's, who's had a, a bit of a rough go of things, and he in turn likes wine and beer. Now what's interesting about this as well, is that E.T.A. Hoffman is a very young man, um, suffered from alcoholism. And so a lot of his writing has been influenced by that. So in the context of this opera, the character Hoffman in the prologue and in the epilogue is pretty inebriated. So that is again a representation of the real E.T.A. Hoffman and how the French authors brought the real character into the story that then Offenbach used to write this opera. So the students ask Hoffman for some entertainment and since Hoffman is a storyteller and they know that, he tells the story of, 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 of a dwarf uh, at an, in a in a castle and how this dwarf is deformed, and how he's got problems with his back and his legs and his head. And Offenbach uses this story, it's called The Ballad of Kleinzach, to express, um, one, the storytelling ability of Hoffmann to entertain the young men in the tavern, but also to bring into the opera some of the amusing ability that, that Offenbach developed writing nearly 90, operettas. So it's a very lively tale. You'll recognize the music because it's repeated three times. But in the middle of the aria, this is the Ballad of Kleinzach, Hoffman's mind drifts. It drifts away a little bit. And he starts to sing about the beauty of women. So here he has this tale about Kleinzach this small man in a castle, and all of a sudden the music changes and he starts to dream about the beauty of women. And the young students don't know what the heck he's talking about. And he says, oh yes. And then he goes back and he sings the remaining uh, portion of the Ballad of Kleinzach. So here is um, just a very brief, you'll hear the, essentially the last refrain of the major, the major s- story of Kleinzach, But then we'll hear Hoffman's drifting into the beauty of women. That was Nikolai Geta, a a Swedish-Russian tenor who passed away about a month ago. Um, Truly a a brilliant, beautiful singer. So Hoffman then finishes that story. The young men are delighted that he's told the story. Counselor Lindorf shows up, and he's essentially the needle in the side of Hoffman. And Hoffman recognizes that whenever Lindorf shows up, good things don't happen. And so while he's there waiting for Stella, he's suspicious that something might happen in that affair. Notwithstanding the young men, students in the tavern ask him to tell stories. And he says, I can tell you the stories about my love affairs, and they're all eager. So he then tells the three tales of the women, uh, the love affair. Now, Offenbach, just a little bit about him, was born in Cologne, Germany. Uh, but moved at the age of 13 to to France. Uh, his father, Jacob, uh, was actually known as Jacob Eberst. Uh, they changed their name to Offenbach, as that was the name of the town they lived in, and Jacques Offenbach's father uh, was known as Der Offenbacher, so they changed their name to Offenbach. His two sons, that is, uh, Jacob's two sons, moved to... Uh, actually it was Isaac's two sons, uh, moved to Paris and Jacques Offenbach was accepted actually into the Paris Conservatory, which they didn't take foreign students, but he was such a, a clever young student, he knew how to get in the side door and took a year's worth of study there. He studied violin originally, but he was fonder of the cello, and without telling his father, he learned to play the cello and became quite accomplished. So much so that later in his, uh, in his early life, adult life, when he was looking for work and not playing in the orchestra of the Opera Comique any longer, he went through Germany and, and France and London and gave cello recitals with Anton Rubenstein and Franz Liszt, just to give you an idea that he was obviously a very accomplished and gifted cellist, but composing was his call that being Offenbach, and at about, the, about 1850 more or less, after playing cello in orchestras and goofing around with that and leading orchestras and writing some incidental music, he decided, this is Offenbach, to rent a small theater and produce his own operas, his own operettas. Now a small theater has different connotations to different people, but the theater that he actually leased had about 50 seats on the Champs Elysees, and the New York Times wrote, the theater is so little as to be almost a joke. There is, in fact, hardly room enough to swing a cat. People do not, however, go to the booths, this is the bouffe Parisienne, uh, for the purpose of swinging cats. They instead go to hear the brightest and newest music and they're never, absolutely never disappointed. So what was essentially a lark in renting this theater and putting on his own operettas, it became the hit of Paris. He sold them out every night, so much so that he rented a second theater and was running two theaters, writing music for his for each shows for each of these theaters, and it was incredibly successful. Now he was, in some ways, we might re- re- relate to Offenbach as the Gilbert and Sullivan of the mid nineteenth century. He was writing at a time when Giacchino Rossini was still active in the music field. Rossini actually referred to Offenbach as the Mozart of the Champs-Elysees. Richard Wagner was also writing his big grand operas, of which there are no happy tunes, as we've all come to learn. Um, And it was, there was in many ways this conflict between the comic operettas that Offenbach was writing and these grand operas that Richard Wagner was writing. And in Paris, it came to a certain point where Offenbach, actually not having seen very much of Wagner's work, nevertheless, nevertheless wrote so much about it that he mounted an operetta that kind of poked fun at Wagner. Well, you don't poke fun at Wagner and not have some reaction. To which Wagner wrote after Offenbach's very successful Orpheus in the Underworld. Uh, Richard Wagner wrote, um, well, that it was a dung heap on which all swine in Europe wallowed. (laughs) To which Offenbach replied, to be erudite and boring is not the equivalent of art. (laughs) So just a footnote. When Offenbach died, Wagner's tune changed a little bit. Wagner was a bit envious of the ability of Offenbach to write such elegant and sweeping melodies. He actually complimented and said and agreed with Rossini that Offenbach in many ways had the same facile musical ability to write write operettas in the style and really in the speed of 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 Mozart and just another little footnote of which there are many Offenbach wanted to write a grand opera because he felt that his life was his musical life would have died out if he hadn't written something important all of these 90 operettas were certainly kind of fluff and he didn't expect them to live or to survive his life and his ability to produce them. So it was important for him to write a very meaty uh, and serious opera that was taken seriously. And in these, in, in, the last, in the last several years of his life. So he then, though during that time, right, so he's dying of, of gout, he knows he's unwell, he still wrote in the last year of his life three operettas in addition to writing the work the tales of hoffman which has survived an amazing feat of a man who lived only to the to the age of 60. so in the first act known as the olympia act there is the character and now i'll give you some different names right it's an act where we meet the physicist in his laboratory so hoffman is going to go to this physicist and his laboratory and meet the doll, the robotic doll that the physicist has created. Right? The physicist is named Spallanzani. And Hoffman is arguably a student of, Sp- of Spallanzani. Now, Spallanzani has been cheated out of some money. And in order to create his doll, he's had to enter into a relationship with Coppelius the incarnation of evil so in this act coppelius shows up and says i want to be paid and oh by the way i provided the eyes for olympia this robotic doll has eyes that i provided and so Spalazzani gives to coppelius a check and says take it to the local bank and they'll they'll, they'll honor it and so coppelius leaves but before he leaves I get a little bit ahead of myself he actually sells to Hoffman a pair of glasses well why does Hoffman need these glasses Hoffman shows up and Spallanzani says to Hoffman that Olympia is his daughter and Hoffman is looking at her through peering at her from a behind a closet or through through a, a window and he's absolutely smitten He's smitten with this character, and he thinks she's beautiful, and he's falling in love. And now Nikolaus, again the muse who accompanies Hoffman, tries to dissuade him, and saying, "This isn't really, this isn't real. Don't go there." And Offenbach writes a a wonderful little scene where Nikolaus actually gives Hoffman an idea that he is looking at a robotic character, a robot, a robot. And this is a very brief moment where Nikolaus is singing to Hoffman, trying to convey to him that he's looking at a robot. Now, Nikolaus in this recording is sung by a baritone, so I'm sorry. Um, I, I don't mean to confuse you, but the music is so beautiful.
1: Oui, je sais tout pour la physique, pour la physique. Aux yeux d'émail, jouait au mieux de l'éventail, auprès d'un petit coq en cuivre, d'un petit coq en cuivre. Tous deux chantaient à l'unisson, d'une merveilleuse façon, dans ces caquetés semblaient vivre, semblaient vivre. Son ah, le petit coq misant des vifs, avec un air rébarbatif, tournait par trois fois sur lui-même, sur lui-même. Par un gouage ingénieux, la poupée en roulant les yeux, soupirait et disait Je te.
2: But <laughs>
0: So you have Nikolaus trying to pull Hoffman back to reality. Well, Coppelius shows up, and he shows up with a bag, a bag of glasses and other instruments. And he convinces Hoffman to buy a pair of glasses because the glasses that he sells ho- says to Hoffman will allow him to, well, see beauty, but see into the heart and soul of anyone he looks at. So Hoffman pays uh, Nicolas actually pays the money Hoffman buys a pair of glasses and Essentially we call them rose-colored glasses. So he looks at Olympia the doll as uh, Through these rose-colored glasses and believes that she is animated and real she's an animate character so Spallanzani wants to introduce this invention of his to his friends, who he invites them all over to a party. And this is where we have the fun. So in the context of the opera, there are wonderful choruses. And this is really one of the more beautiful one, the arrival of all of the guests who will be introduced to Olympia um, as Spallanzani hopes, and to possibly see a new son-in-law. Spalanzani tells uh, the folks, the guests, about his invention. He says it's a, he wants to introduce them to someone, and that she can actually sing, and she can accompany herself on the piano or the harp. And so someone suggests that she play on the harp. So in many productions, she actually doesn't play on the harp, but it's, it's a nice idea. So the doll comes out, and the doll sings the aria. And she does move mechanically, but Hoffman, again with these glasses, is absolutely gobsmacked at the beauty of this woman and the beauty of her voice. So while everyone else is entertained by her and in particular um, her movements which do have a jerky motion to them or do have a robotic motion to them, Hoffman doesn't see see this. And what's funny to even make the point a little bit greater, as you all well know, the doll is wound up and during the middle of this aria where she's singing about the birds in the sky and how beautiful it is and how they all lead to love, the doll runs out, the the springs unwind. And so it's always fun to see how a director is going to deal with that. You've probably seen Beverly Sills, or recall Beverly Sills, and they would literally just go bend way over. And so then someone comes back and essentially winds them up again. So Offenbach represents this in the music. So while we all know there's something fishy about this character, Hoffman doesn't. But the aria is exquisite. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, Beverly Sills in her performances actually makes a meal out of it. So you have to realize that given his ability to deal with humor in the opera house or on the stage, Offenbach brings to this character really the experience of his 40 years of writing comic opera. So we have then, what happens is that um, Coppelius realizes that the the check that Spallanzani has given him is bad, and he comes back and he essentially destroys the doll and grabs the eyes, handing the remnants of this destroyed... Mechanical doll to Hoffman, destroying uh, his incipient love affair with her. We then go to the to the to the next act. and Before we get there, Offenbach actually devised this to be written as a um, as a grand opera instead of a comic opera, opera a French comic opera, for the opéra comique. And there's a there's important distinction um, in French at the French opéra comique. It was actually songs arias and duets and ensembles that were separated by spoken language. That was the convention. There there wasn't the sung recitative in between the arias or the the ensemble pieces. Offenbach wanted to write an opera which had the recitatives in between it, a through-composed, all-musical, but because he engaged the opera comique in Paris, he then had to write it in the opera comique style. So there's generally spoken language in between dialogue, in between each of the arias, duets, or the ensemble pieces. That was the convention and the structure required by that opera house. In other opera houses, there was another composer, Ernest Giraud, who actually, after Offenbach's death, wrote recitative that connected the, uh, the the scenes. Giraud also wrote the recitative that connected scenes in Carmen of Georges Bizet. So Giraud had this reputation of really being the fix-it kind of, kind of, uh, kind of guy, kind of composer. The other thing about the opera is that it was known as a bad luck opera for many years, and the reason for that is that not in the first year that it was at the Opéra Comique there were 101 performances, but Offenbach actually engaged two different companies, the Opéra Comique in Paris and the, the, and the Vienna Opera. And on the second night of the Vienna Opera, the Opera House burned down. 400 people lost their lives, the director was arrested and he committed suicide. So there was the thought that this is an opera that really brings bad luck. In 1887, there was a fire actually at the Opera Comique which burned some of the score and has given rise to many of the problems, or let's just say, issues that opera companies have in piecing together this opera because portions of it have been been lost. But it still survives because of the beauty and invention of Jacques Offenbach. It was, there's always been some question as to whether the Venice Act, the Giulietta Act, is second or third. Many people in the last, many companies in the last 30 years have put the Venice scene, the Giulietta scene in the second act position. Giulietta is a very wealthy, beautiful courtesan uh, in Venice, and it begins, this act begins with the exquisite Barcarolle, which is essentially the representation of the, uh, the punters on the, on the Grand Canal uh, in, uh, in, in Venice. Uh, this is a song they sing. So in the performances, Nicolaus sings the, um, uh, the, the beauty of love, the love at night, um, au belle nuit, oh, uh, oh belle nuit, nuit d'amour. Uh, it's probably the best known moment of this opera. Uh, it didn't come from this opera. Offenbach wrote it as an overture to one of his earlier failed attempts known as die Rheinnixen or the Rheinnixies, but he used it so much better and so much more beautifully uh, located on the Grand Canal. So while composing the tales of Hoffman, Le Hoffmann, Offenbach had a little friend. He had a Russian greyhound dog that he named Kleinzach, who, uh, who accompanied him. In this scene, uh, D'Apertuto, again the manifestation of evil, gives to, uh, give to Julietta a diamond, a big diamond, so that this entices her to capture the vision, the, the image of Hoffman in a mirror And by capturing this image, it captures essentially his soul. So Dapertutto is trying to capture the soul of Hoffman. Well, Dapertutto has also captured the shadow of a character named Schlemiel, which is a Yiddish word and it was totally intentional. This character is a Schlemiel, but he is the, the current escort of Giulietta, and he and Hoffman fight a battle, Hoffman kills him, Uh, Giulietta leaves this scene in a gondola with a small jester named Pitti Canaccio, Um, Hoffman thwarted yet again. Uh, But there is this known, what's known as the Diamond Aria, and the Diamond Aria was actually composed after Offenbach's death in 1905 by the Monte Carlo Opera. A different composer took some music that Offenbach wrote for a different opera, a different aria, and Jules Barbier's son wrote the words, but it is an aria that is in most performances known as the Diamond Aria, and we'll hear a portion of it performed by the great American baritone, Leonard Warren. Okay, so we've got the, the last act, the Antonia act. She's a singer, uh, she's, she has consumption. Uh, she's engaged to Hoffman. Her father, Crespel, has moved she and her her household to Munich to avoid Hoffman, to try to hide from him because Crespel thinks that Hoffman is letting his daughter sing, and letting her daughter, his daughter sing will lead her to death, as has happened to Antonia's mother. Hoffman finds them but even though they're going to get married the next day and profess their love for one another, uh, Dr. Miracle shows up and notwithstanding the efforts of Crespel and Hoffman, Dr. Miracle forces Antonia to sing higher and higher and more stridently. Well, it's beautiful, but but with more force that even evoking the image of her mother in a painting on the wall and the voice of her mother Dr. Miracle, the voice of Antonia's mother and Antonia sing to the point where Antonio falls lifeless. At the end of this act, Hoffman yet again frustrated. We're back in the epilogue where Hoffman is in the bar. He's totally inebriated, so much so that even Nicolaus, the muse, uh, in, tries to get him more so, so that he does not go off with Stella. Stella sees this. She instead goes off with Counselor Lindorf. Hoffman is left behind embraced and recognizing that his muse is what is more important and i'll leave you with just the last few minutes of one of the best known pieces of music of joff offenbach from probably his one of his more famous operettas and you can all dance off to the performance Enjoy the performance, friends. Thank you so much. Hi, guys.